Forum Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to Forum Borealis. Today we pursue a subject we've touched in passing in several shows, namely the phenomenon known as egregore. These are non-physical entities arising from a group of people psychologized as group minds that in metaphysical aspects can become externalized in psychic or even physical manifestations. These uh, collective thought forms not only are produced by the common factors of a group, but also influences it back through a mutual feedback loop from their symbiotic relationship. Since the notion pops up in so many different contexts, it is time to understand its depths, so we can understand its place in the world of mysteries. To help us get through this, we speak with esotericist and author of the only Anglophone book about it, Mark Stavish. Now, full disclosure, as ardent listeners of my show already know, because I exposed it in Gordon White's Rune Soup interview with me, Decades ago, as a young man, I joined Armark, which is acronym for Ancient and Mystical Order Rosa Crucis, which is one of many neo-Rosicrucian groups out there. This one, particularly famous for being American, albeit with French roots, and the largest of its ilk, and probably also the one with the best spiritual education, although... I am referring to the old Armorc, which is not the same entity as the new one today, seeing as there was a famous power battle where a majority of the Grand Masters, which is the title for the leader of national jurisdictions, colluded to oust their then Imperator, which is the title for the international head, Gary Stewart. The new head of Armorc, who revised its contents, became Christian Bernard, a Frenchman, and son of a former French Grandmaster, Raymond Bernard, who is also known within Templar traditions, and incidentally initiator to Timothy Hogan, whom I've had on my show before as a guest. Incidentally, Mark Stavish was also a member back in the day, and I uh, used to discuss with him, mind you, under pseudonym, which I always apply in all public relations in my life, including pen name for my own writings. Anyway, just due to this fact alone, we couldn't help ourselves. And naturally, at some point, had to go full geek into Armok and, <laughs> and some of its historic and cultural aspects. Although such an inside baseball segment may be a turn-off for some, others may find it interesting for the same reason it often is interesting being a fly on the wall when two insiders discuss something. Fortunately, it's not uh, so exclusive that you can't follow the thread. And for those of you who are members of any spiritual group, be that Rosicrucian or otherwise, it's always going to be educating to extract lessons from similar experiences. So with that caveat in place, let's introduce our guest. Mark Stavish is born and raised in Pennsylvania, which is fitting, seeing as huge groups 
of pietist exiles from Europe's Rosicrucian and alchemical circles settled there back in the day. He's a lifelong student of esotericism with over 35 years experience in comparative religion, philosophy, psychology and mysticism with emphasis on the traditional Western esotericism. He first studied at Wilkes University between 81 and 83, graduating with a BA in communications. He moved on to King's College between 83 and 86, where he graduated with a BA in theology. Between 89 and 91, he studied at Rhode Island College, where he took a master's in counseling, emphasizing psychospiritual modalities and psychosynthesis, graduating in 93. Professionally, Mark has over 15 years experience in the social service and non-profit fields and has trained hundreds of social service workers, law enforcement personnel, mental health care providers in areas related to new and emerging religions. He set up his own practice already in 87 and has worked as a freelance author, writer and lecturer ever since. But his main day job, which lasted from then and up to 12, was as a consultant helping individuals, businesses and organizations identify their needs, find solutions and implement changes to achieve their goals. Stavish worked as an addiction counselor for Edge Hill Incorporated in Rhode Island between 90 and 93. Between 91 and 93, he worked for New England Holistic Counselors Association in their Public Relations Committee. Between 93 and 95, he was case records manager for GR2 Trudeau Center. Between 96 and 97, he worked both for the Times Leader as well as for the Indiana Press. Between 2000 and 04, he worked as development coordinator for St. Michael's School. Between 08 and 10, he worked with Advanced Composition General Education and Adjunct Faculty at ITT Technical Institute. And from 09, he also started working as a teacher at the University of Scranton, where he, to this day, is educating students in public speaking. His personal interests are photography, book collecting and traveling. Among his esoteric studies has been decades in the Rosicrucian Order Armork, where he served as regional monitor, lodge master and secretary. Uh, the traditional Martinist Order and the Alchemical School Philosophers of Nature, where he served as regional director. He also served as director of research for the Occult Research and Applications Project, Aura, a statistically based research wing of the pawn, performed with detailed exploration into the validity and practicality of various traditional esoteric methods. This original research was published in the organization's journal, The Stone. He is the founder and director of studies for the Institute of Hermetic Studies, as well as for the Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin Fund, a non-profit dedicated to advancing the study and practice of Western esotericism. Mark is also the author of the long-running esoteric blog called Vox Hermes. His articles have appeared in academic, speciality and mass market publications specializing in spiritual studies. 
and his major publications focusing on new and emerging religions has resulted in consultation and on-air appearances, as well as for news and documentary productions and print articles dealing with spirituality, including History Channel, Discovery Channel, A&E, BBC, The New York Times, Coast to Coast AM, Just Energy Radio, Animal Planet, and the TV documentary series The Haunted. Apart from being a frequent lecturer on ancient occult knowledge, she's also author of almost 30 books in seven languages on a wide variety of esoteric, occult, mystical and spiritual topics like alchemy, Kabbalah, meditation, Freemasonry, ritualism, lucid dreaming and astral projection and is listed as a notable writer in Who's Who. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Mark. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you for two reasons, I have to say. Number one, I think you're the only one who ever wrote a book on Egregores. Mm-hmm. And number two, we used to be in touch decades ago. I believe so. You know, I, I... both of us were a member of Armark back in the day. That's how I discovered. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's so funny to finally have you here on my show speaking with you directly. We've been corresponding um, in other regards. We don't have to go into details about that, but uh, kind of the circle is complete now, I think. That's good. Okay. So beware, this is a conversational interview. So if you you trigger my enthusiasm, I may give a rant of myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. I mean, listeners are used to it. Not all new guests are. So it's it's not necessarily going to be a one-liner with a lecture in reply. I may have a reasoning. I may challenge you with a difficult question, whatever. It's but, right. you know, you can handle it. No problem. Sure thing. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I see that you've been very active, made much more books than I first pursued. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. I'm having the Egregora book in mind, of course, but. Um, mm-hmm. Can you confirm, by the way, that you are the only one who has written a book about Egregores? Well, you know, I, I think so. I, I've tried to follow that up. I believe there may have been a book in French prior to mine, but I haven't been able to get a copy of it. So I don't know what it says and, and, and no one has spoken to me about it. However, since my book came out, Egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny. And here's the plug. It's in English, German and Hungarian, probably a few more on on the way, Uh, I believe that uh, the term has become more popular. We've seen it in in, in more literature and in popular uh, usage. Yeah. And I think that some books have come out uh, using Amazon as my my source of intelligence there. (laughs) So uh, I think um, we can say a qualified yes to that. I, I may be the only person who's written a book on egregores. Right. At least maybe one that's worth reading. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if there's another one, of course it would be in French. French yes. or Greek <laughs> is what I would expect. Yes. But, uh, but it's not just yeah, that you seized <laughs> this, and, and I guess you actually stumble into it, because if you have a mercantile mind, this is a step of genius, because as this term or this understanding will grow and, and people get more and more familiar, I mean, my listeners already know all about it. Not all about it. They know about it. Mm-hmm. And I see that other people too in the podcast world are starting to get familiar. So I think your book will be the go-to book. It will be the standard because most people don't have access to the sources we had access to where we encountered it. So 
this will become the book. And I think in, in, in 10 years from now, it's probably be the best-selling book you have. But it's not just that, that it's a stroke of genius if you were mercantile about it, which I believe you weren't. You just wrote it because you felt it, and you can explain this, that you felt it was deserved. But it's also that the book is actually good. And there's no guarantee. <laughs> it's no guarantee that you have a, you know obscure topic book that is good. But I have to say yours is. So, um, yeah. So you, you can tell me, first of all, how you came about writing about it. Well, well that's just it. You know, I, I was sitting in the, the Lost Dog Cafe in Binghamton, New York with Jocelyn Godwin, who I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with. Mm. And I just off the cuff said to him, you know, I, I'm thinking about writing a monograph on egregores. And, you know, the idea was a monograph. I was thinking it was just going to be a small book uh, for specialty audience. It wasn't anything in particular. And he said, well, jokingly said, well, thank God, because if you don't, I'll have to. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Because this is a topic that he and I would talk about often, uh, mm. particularly the, the more recent uh, discussion was around Peter Mark Adams' book, The Game of Saturn, uh, who some of your listeners may be familiar with, but other, other aspects of egregores as well. So uh, I went home and I had notes already put together. And of course, as you know, we, we've had access to different information. And I just started writing the book and it wrote itself so nicely. It was like a conversation as if you and I were just sitting down here and I was explaining to you or you were explaining to me the nature of these things mm. with different examples. So when the manuscript was finished, it didn't really have clear-cut chapters as you normally see in a book. We kind of had to artificially insert chapter breaks in there mm. around topics. Excuse me. And um, it was, you know, like the baby bear's porridge, as we say. It was just right. Mm. You know, I, I wanted to put more information in, but I couldn't find a good way to do that easily. And I thought it wouldn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, you know, it ruins the flow. And it's just a nice size book. It's kind of the perfect size to introduce you to the topic. And once introduced to the topic, you can begin to extrapolate the details for yourself out of it. You don't need me to, to hold your hand and walk you through all the details. It's very self-explanatory once you've read it. So the, the manuscript was then sent off to Inner Traditions. And uh, uh, Jocelyn had already read it, I believe, at that point. And uh, they had said, well, you know, we'll, we'll accept it because we can only send this. There's only two people we know that are qualified to judge this book, and one of them already read it. So, um, <laughs> you know, we, we're, okay. they accepted it. And uh, I was thrilled. They, they're great folks to work with, by the way. And um, then it just took off. And it yeah. took off for a lot of reasons. So you already seen it take off. I see. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it took off. It just and, and it continues to. I mean, I've I've done more. I made one decision with that book that I didn't do with others, and that is that I would accept every interview offer I was given. Yeah. On it. <laughs> because you thought it would be so few. <laughs> yeah, I, I I just thought, you know, we'll just do it. We'll just do it and see how it goes. But part of it, I believe, has to do with the the events of 2020 as well. Uh, and, and things that went along around that. Uh, people were trying to understand how collective consciousness and collective influences work. And, and the book describes that quite precisely in two ways. One is the traditional way, which we think are very important. And I, and I include you in that when I say we, because we have that background. 
and also a more modern perspective, which we would see in terms of just collect a more psychological perspective, but they are not separate. No, but what's the evidence of 2020 you're referring to? COVID? Uh, well, just COVID, but everything around it in terms of what do we believe? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the realization that the media is inherently dishonest. Yeah. And, and I worked in media. I tell people, I said, I've been on more shows than most people have ever known about. I've done more interviews. I've interviewed people. I do all this stuff. Reporters will tell me things and I'll tell you, listen, they lie and they're dishonest for a variety of reasons. And people just don't want to believe it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I think that's, I mean, the only new thing is that so many people are aware of it. I mean, lies has been with it. Deceit has been the name of the game since Cain. Uh, but now people are aware. And that's a very interesting situation. So we'll see. We, we can get more into those things later. I want to start off by what you just touched. Okay. Because in my view, there's been three. I would say I was first going to say two approaches to Egregora, but I'm, I'm really seeing three. The one approach, we could probably call the magical, which is, let's say, like where, where they look at egregores as creatures or entities, I guess, mm-hmm. um, figuring often in especially medieval and, and ancient kind of magic, not, not theurgy, but more like um, uh, what you could call it, grimoires and stuff like that. Then you have uh, probably what you call the psychological, which is, and, and you even devote a chapter to the Rosicrucian approach. So yes. they are representative of that, which is more like, no, it's the it's like a collective thought forms of everything. It's like the fusing, the, the actions, feelings, and thoughts of, let's say, all the members of the organization. And then you have a third, I would say, mm-hmm. perspective, which is where I think um, Spencer Lewis I think he encountered this term in Europe among the more obscure esoteric groups there. And they have something in between. It's more like it is something that's created by consciousness, but it's also something that lives on its own. And it's something that can be, I, I guess, tulpa in the Eastern tradition is pretty similar. And if you remember Dion Fortune's self-biography where she have you read that? Psychic self-defense? You yes. probably have. Yes. Yeah. Remember when she had this encounter with the wolf? She was very young. She was in this mystery school. Uh, and, and she created, uh, inadvertently, she created this creature that was running havoc, uh, biting people in the night <laughs> in this house. And she had to take it back by dragging it by its silver cord. And when she mm-hmm. reintegrated it with her, she was overwhelmed by feelings of, of uh, fear and hate and all that stuff. And, and that's, I, I think, it can also be said to be an egregorious. So I have to make people from the outset aware of how diverse perspectives are on this. And I, may, I hope I'm not asking too much when I expect you to make sense of this and try to weave it into a coherent understanding, which means that I'm not just asking you to be to describe it phenomenologically. I'm actually asking you to make a philosophical judgment call on this phenomenon. <laughs> well, I, you know, you you gave three descriptions, and in the book and in other interviews, I've I've blended two of those together uh, within the context of the book just to make it easier. Yeah. And we'll look at the first one. Uh, this is a psychological view, and it does not have any metaphysics attached to it. 
And this would be the notion of that we see in advertising. Mm. How do we get people thinking, acting, acting really is what we want. Well, we don't care what they think. We care what they do. And that, and that needs to be understood mm. that egregores are a social control mechanism. And I take that term from uh, Jacques Vallée in reference to the UFO phenomena, which we're, we're seeing a lot of supposed reports about recently in the last year, year and a half. Yeah. And, and within that framework, egregores are a limitation. They're a limiting device. Because like anything, you, you need limits. That's without limits, there, nothing exists. So these limitations can be healthy or unhealthy or, or neutral. For the most part, um, it's what we make of them. Uh, however, some groups clearly have very definite boundaries based upon their goal. The, 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 the organization exists for a purpose. And that organization isn't just physical but it's, it's metaphysical as well. But we're going to talk just about a corporate, and I, I take that as bodily view that most people would think of. So they go through life, and, and they really don't think much beyond the sensory input. And so you have advertising can be very influential on them, and advertising of all sorts, by the way. Suggestion is what we're looking at, the power of suggestion here. Mm. And that creates a commonality of view, commonality of purpose, commonality of action, and that forms an egregore. And that can be on the family level, all the way up to the national level or to some degree world level. Okay. Yeah, I, I would say a very good example is when you go to a football match, uh, a stadium filled with people, you have two clashing egregores. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That, and that's just a great example because I talk a lot about sports, uh, you know, the, the power of the sports egregore. I mean, I'm in Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and we have Penn State University and there's bumper stickers that say that if God isn't a Penn State fan, why is the sky blue and white? <laughs> yeah. right. And it's kind of funny, but, you know, they've just turned it into a religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because when they say Penn State, they don't mean the academics. They mean Penn State football. It's that implied. Mm. So we have that aspect. And then we have the other aspect where we, there's a metaphysical view, which you've hinted at, which is which Harvey Lewis, Harvey Spencer Lewis with Amwork was, was aiming towards. And where the collective energy of the members formulate a, a view. Now, the problem there including is- Including dead members, that has to be added. Yes, yes, including dead members. However, it's a, an terribly anthroposophic view, uh, anthropomorphic, excuse me, anthropomorphic view, because it's really only concerned with this notion of human and what constitutes humanity. Now, they did involve, Amorg did involve what they called their cosmic masters to some degree as well. Yeah. So there was that extra element too. But then when we go beyond that, we, we have this more classical notion which involves the gods. Mm. You know, what are these gods? What are these deities? And we begin to recognize that within this cosmos, there's a whole lot of sentient beings, as the Buddhists would say, that, that we're not really even familiar with. So what are these angels? What are these demons? What are these elementals? What are these gods, these demigods, these asuras? All of these invisible intelligences and forces because at that point they're the same thing energy or force and intelligence are synonymous at that point how are they interacting and how are we interacting with them and what are these channels of interaction and those channels of interaction form the egregore and whatever people are in it entities are in it consciousnesses are in it and then how do they interrelate between the physical world down here 
and the so-called psychic, metaphysical, or spiritual worlds as far as that may go, whatever that happens to be, whatever that limit is. This is super interesting because a, a very big question is whether they are, you know, I had Anthony Peak on mm-hmm. uh, recently and he's, he's uh, a fan of yours. Okay. And <clears throat> he said, he suggested that jinns, an example of these creatures are made of plasma. Now, mm-hmm. yes. whether that's true or not, the point is, then they have an objective existence outside of my mind. But if these phenomenons, even if they can have a life of their own, they, they can be objective, but within this human mind, as you suggested, if they're psychological phenomena, mm-hmm. they may be entities moving about in our psyche, but they're still limited just to our psyche. But if they are made of plasma, they are outside our body, they are... Um, they would exist independent of if I exist or not, or if I'm aware of them or not. And I think that's a very crucial question. Are they entities out there? They just vibrating in the ranges of the electromagnetic spectre that we cannot directly sense with a limited uh, perception range, right? Mm-hmm. Or are they limited to our consciousness and either as a mere psychological phenomenon like probably Armok would say, or even they can be, you know, they can take on a, a mind of their own, but they still are yes. operating within our psychology. I think that's a very big question. And I, I, of course, I don't expect us to, you know, finally solve it here and now, but what's your thought about this? Well, it's always the point of transition. You know, it, the notion is, is that within the metaphysical domain, our thoughts are things and that they have a potentiality of, uh, concretizing, solidifying to a degree that, as uh, we would say, you know, they're a kind of matter. And and we have a problem in, in Western esotericism, the way we deal with the elements, um, especially in Western magic, uh, where it talks about spirit, you know, there's earth, air, fire, water, and spirit. But spirit is seen as something other. The reality is spirit is a form of matter. It's a very, very subtle matter. And you see that well explained within uh, Indian Tantra and Indian alchemy and in Vajrayana. Uh, But we we have that kind of separation. We need to recognize that it's a form of very subtle mental matter, if you will, and that anything in duality is a form of matter. Mm. And duality is very subtle until we go until we're no longer dealing with duality. Correct. Uh, So even though it it is a of something which has form which has an aspect of time-space to it. Just that on those levels, time-space is so very different from what we experience here. You know, we call it spiritual. Uh, so within that framework, our thoughts are not even with, limited to within the domain of, we'd say, Malkuth. Our, our thoughts are actually in Yasod already. But they just come and go, and, and, you know, they're like mayflies. They don't last very long, or soap bubbles, they pop. Mm. So through occult practices or simply through rumination and obsession, we can formulate a thought form that then what does that do? That acts as a link, a conduit, a mechanism wherein we temporarily transcend whatever those limits are. And it becomes a vehicle for like attracting like, uh, whether that be good, bad, or indifferent uh, for these more objective forces to inhabit. 
Uh, that's why we have the problems of obsession or even possession. There's different kinds of possession or obsession. Yeah. Uh, and the reality is that there's a lot of things out there. I mean, we're, we're barely aware of the, the various microorganisms that exist in our eyebrows or our gut, mm. let alone the various, we'll call them different organisms that exist in, in the psychic dimension. Mm. So when we, we have these focal points, the, the mind, any visualization that we do, any ritual, which is a form of visualization, even if we're not doing it as we do it, it that emotional focus creates a conduit to link us as individuals or a group of individuals in that unified action to uh, a mirror-like force and intelligence that is greater and more potent and more refined than we are at that moment in order to create a relationship with it, thereby in some way benefiting both of us. And that can happen unconsciously as well. Mm. Uh, let me dumb it down a little here, because uh, what I uh, infer from this is that if we can create, if we create, you know, the mind is super powerful. We all know that, and we've been told this by the ancient and old traditions say it. And I often said, <coughs> excuse me, mm -hmm. that if you really want to control a person, forget force, forget bribe, seduction, extortion, Anything, nothing is as powerful as taking away his memory. If you can take away someone's memory, when they wake up, you can make them believe anything. Yeah. And on a collective level, this is also true. So we see that power structures in history has always tried to seize the collective memory, whether it be the Third Reich or it be the Catholic Church or whatever. We're giving the narrative or the media today corrupt media today, oligarch media, we are giving the narrative. And whether it's intended or not, the sum result will be that if we are created in God's image, you know, mm -hmm. basically what it really says in the scripture is the creator created small creators. Now, if this is true and we have this huge power, which is used in magic, etc., then obviously controlling people's having some kind of driving the narrative and making sure that people are not using their mind outside of the Overton window is kind of a black magic, actually. <laughs> and you can then direct people's focus and stuff will be created from that. Now, if we can break free from that, like uh, the idea in magic, and we can actually manipulate energy with our mind, mm -hmm. then yes, we can create vehicles that even entities not related to us, like you implied, entities can take these vehicles and use them. And maybe later we can also get back to the body of light, body okay. of fire, diamond body. Gurdjieff talked about we had to create to survive reincarnation. That's very interesting. It's related to. But here's my point. Here's my question. So if we can create these things, look at, look at our modern zeitgeist and look at the UFO phenomenon. I mean, couldn't that partly explain something like this? Well, I, th I think when we, you know, first look at the notion of memory, let me just address that because what makes human beings uh, unique among many life forms is that on this planet is that we have memory and from memory we can imagine, we can recreate and recombine ideas from the past into 
a projection into the future. And it's always fascinating that, you know, when people talk about manipulation, they mention the Third Reich as if, you know, somehow it mattered. It dissolved in 12 and a half years. But let's look at communism when, when communism has done far more damage. And I, I bring that out simply to point out how we are directed unconsciously. We have habituated ourselves to almost ignore those crimes. Mm. Uh, and that's really important because this is th there you see within communism, truly the beginning of year zero. I mean, it truly wanted to wipe out everything prior to it, far more than, than the manipulations of maybe Catholicism in some respects. But I mean, that's, that's not really important. But the point is, it's an easy to see example of just killing everybody off. And this is year zero. This is the beginning all over again mm. in every communist regime. So this is a, a reality that what you've pointed out, and it's very easy to see even today at this moment. So we look at all, and then we can look at any other regime if we want to as well. The, um, you know, and any other political regime, it's easy to see that. So that notion of what, what constitutes history, what constitutes memory is very important because then it creates a context. And of course, communism excelled at that of creating a, a context in which, because look, the, it created walls to keep its people in. Mm. It, it, created context in which the owning of various records, you know, that is record albums. Okay. Oh, uh, right. Various types of media was forbidden mm. that it was controlling the narrative and the context repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. Mm. And um, yeah, but hang on. It didn't do, you know, the, the difference is that the Nazis tried to revise history, you know, the past. Sure they did. That's my point. I, I'm, I'm sure, but the, so so did communism in its own way by trying by by killing people off and right and and by just by through its its notion right. they had different approaches to it, but it was still the same thing. Yeah, is we will control your mind, mm. and and in my mind, given just that one lasted longer than the other, we need to look at why was that? Why why was this one able to last longer than the other, and and what was its success in that controlling of the mind and controlling of, of the, the, its own zeitgeist, its own popular consciousness. Mm. So we, we look at that, we can, you know, we look at these successes and failures and we can stay on the political aspect or the religious aspect, but at the end of the day, we have to free ourselves. And that's what we're talking about. How do we free ourselves from these egregores, these focal points? Well, governments are very good and as our religions and, and, corporate entities of any kind, it doesn't really matter, of creating new ways to focus our attention and distract us. Mm. And UFOs are a wonderful example of that because they're an unknown and we can speculate all we want about them. But the fact is we simply don't know and we'll probably never know. Again, Jacques Vallée was clear about that, that you don't get all the information. You only get bits and pieces of it. There's very good information. There's very bad information. There's disinformation. There's many groups and forces at play. It's, it's not a simple us or them or, or a handful. It's, it's a variety of agendas are at work. Mm -hmm. Now, Jean Dubuis stated back in the days of the philosophers of nature that, uh, and he was probably taking some of his lead from, from Valet, is that the, the goal of, many, of some groups, at least, was to focus so much attention on this UFO phenomenon that it would actually solidify and that you would, you would have this kind of uh, 
projection solidify of a UFO or UFOs and that this then would be uh, the new mechanism that people who then were in contact with, as the term goes, the space brothers, if you will, would then become the new intermediaries between humanity and the space brothers. And of course, his view was, and having gone through the, the, the Nazi period, the occupation of France, he had stated that, uh, you know, the, these people would even be worse than the Nazis. Mm. And, you know, he's not throwing this around loosely like we would hear the words today. And that's why I bring that up. So he didn't trust the, the, the UFO mm. phenomenon. He didn't trust it uh, he, uh, very much, and he saw it as a, a form of mass manipulation. Because we see how easy it is to get people caught up in it. And, and I think that when we look at what goes on today with the massive amount of media around the paranormal and what it focuses on and how, how what of poor quality it is, that we see a lot of psychic energy, a lot of emotional energy being directed at a handful of topics, one of which is UFOs. And um, of course, we see more of it now in the media um, so-called releases and then nothing ever happens. The memory isn't there. The history, the memory isn't there. People don't know that this is the same thing that's being said for 70 years. It doesn't change. But obviously our interpretation of it will change according to our zeitgeist. And I think both Jung and Valet were very early out indicating because my, my question wasn't as much about the UFOs being a distraction as uh, the, could they be a creation of our collective mind. And I believe Jung touched that aspect of you. Of course, UAPs is anything. So it's, you know, it's a diverse phenomenon. But mm-hmm. the interesting part of UAPs, the parts that there's a disclosure Amazingly, I never expected that in my lifetime. But there is a current disclosure going on. Even Obama has come clean about it. I don't know for what. I mean, they they want to be ahead of the narrative for whatever reason. But bottom line, we're talking about those energetic objective number one, energy number two, and number three, not human in the meaning of they are not created deliberately by our government or our corporations. And they number four, they have features that are. I guess you could call it paranormal, like breaking all laws of physics. Now, yeah. Jung, <clears throat> Jung's perspective, he, he kind of dragged the archetypes into this. And in a way, he's talking about egregores. But Valet, more interesting, he said explicitly, I think it's in Messengers of Deception, he said that when he did his thorough analysis of the phenomenon and proved what you cited earlier, that whatever they are, mm-hmm. all of them cannot be, they cannot be, vehicles, spacecrafts from wherever. It, it doesn't fit when you see his analysis. And he also is pointed out that they seem to be interacting with our expectation and they seem to be somehow related to our collective minds. Like a, he called it a control system, mm-hmm. a natural control system, uh, either from Earth or from from humans. And, and that's kind of that it has been no focus on that almost and i think i think it's timely now that a, the concept of egregores is known that we should also allow ourselves to speculate okay. that there could be a relationship there because if we can create with our minds objective phenomena what is more what is more objective phenomena than uaps or ufos comment 
Well, I, I think that's that's the critical point is that we're seeing this occur now and just the notion of synchronicity suggests a relationship mm-hmm. because there is, you know, in synchronicity, there's levels of complexity that, that we don't particularly see, yeah. but are there, they're, they're undercurrents. And it goes in line with what we see in terms of the, the media obsession and with that even streaming medias, whether it be Netflix or Amazon Prime or, or whatever, with the amount of paranormal shows that are taking place, the obsession with paranormal esotericism in different levels, even if the shows only run for two, three years and, and go, but we see them, mm. you know, they, they keep coming back. So, uh, and, and we see it on a more complex level than before. Yeah. The themes of the shows involve more precision, uh, a certain and greater degree of accuracy. And, and I use that word loosely. Uh, yeah, becoming more adult is true. Yes, more, and to some degree, more adult. I wouldn't necessarily say they're more adult. I would simply say they're, they're more attentive to the information level of their audience Mm. you know so that when you see a movie i didn't see it i didn't watch the show but i heard it was fairly funny they show they show these two guys sitting in a lodge and they're at the the bar in the lodge and behind it are these very nice images and they're they're authentic they're they're real images Mm -hmm. you know and so they're using the language that they expect uh or they're using the language that their viewers expect them to use so they're more in tune with their viewers. I don't necessarily know if they're more adult. And, I, and I'm making a clear distinction on that for some very specific reasons. Because we still see contemporary occultism, uh, particularly in the, in the paranormal research areas, when we'll say ghosts and UFOs and psychic phenomena, that kind of thing, mm. is still terribly infantile and adolescent yeah. um, But really, modern esotericism is still widely influenced far more than it likes to admit by popular culture. Uh, there is a bit of a feedback loop there, as I just mentioned, but still it receives more impact from popular culture rather than I think popular culture is impacted by it. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, the, the expectation is that the occult, the esoteric is influencing culture. But like you pointed out in the show you sent me, um, what was the, let's give a shout out to his podcast. What was it called again? Uh, uh, Venus Rising yeah. by Eric Simpkins. Yeah. You two guys made a huge point out of that in modern esotericism, especially the, should we say, the exoteric aspect of modern esotericism, mm-hmm. the current culture is influencing that. And we were lamenting certain phenomenons in modern esotericism before we started the show. And I think you're right. I think that's a result of... Mm-hmm that adolescent level being imposed back upon us so that when new people come into, like, you know, in the old days, people came into esotericism either from academia or from religion or from parapsychology. Mm -hmm. Today, huge uh, groups of people are coming in from stuff like new age and from, you know, uh, role game. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Um, Computer games, yeah, role. live action, role playing, right? Yeah, stuff like that, right? And so you already have a theater element, and you have a modern culture element in it, and that obviously has to has to influence, has to formate, you know, new generations, right? So they will be the representatives, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and, and we can tell by, and, and this, of course, forms an egregore, 
right? And and when we or a collective view. Mm. So when we look at contemporary esotericism as a whole, in general, and we are generalizing here, mm. there will always be exceptions. That needs to be very clear. But we see increasingly the role of the internet in access of information, which means perceptions of how people relate to that information, how they relate to so-called content producers rather than teachers, okay, mm. uh, or instructors, how they relate to their relationship or commitment to it when, and the people involved. Mm. We see a change in the, even in the publishing industry, it is a publishing industry first and foremost. And, and look, occultism has always been involved in publishing. And let's not pretend there wasn't industrial and commercial aspects to this. Mm. There have been mm. historically across cultures. It's just a matter of who was paying for it, okay, and how it was financed, because all of these things have required financing. And those that don't have a high level of financing often tend to be very small, and we never hear about them. And yeah. To some degree, I have to question that because then how really influential is it? How meaningful is it? I mean, Amwork was criticized heavily because it advertised, but it created a framework for people for generations. Mm -hmm. It created a gateway and, and a lot of people knew other people through that gateway. Yeah. So they, there's, there, there's something to be said for being known. You need an outer face, mm -hmm. uh, an outer gateway. So that said, but if your relationship is primarily through publishing, there's that mercurial aspect, or again, mercurial, and the mental aspect. Mm. And that has a tendency, what we see in, in practices, for people to stay in their own head, uh, to stay in their own ideas, uh, to be, again, like mercury. Uh, so the, the maturation level tends to often be in that framework. That's where we see a lot of snarkiness. You know, we wrote a monograph called Pathology of the Sublime. You know, th this process is one of inner, inner growth and affirmation and expression, which means you, you need to learn how to play well with others. And when I see these esoteric groups that can't play well with others, um, we're, we're not seeing maturity. And we talked before the show about some of the scoundrels that we know in common. Well, scoundrels have always been there, mm. but at the same time, that's a mercurial aspect as well. How do you develop the qualities of discrimination to begin to recognize, you know, is this a good choice? Is this a healthy choice? You know, are they, are they keeping their promises? Uh, is there clarity in the communication or is there deception going on? All of this is part of the path, regardless of which way you go. But what we're seeing is a tremendous amount of it going on within the current framework. Yeah. But uh, you forget to mention that when we are in this little detour, then uh, we should also admit that modern groups has taken a different, modern esoteric groups is different from before. But yeah, they, uh, Before, they, I mean, today they are so commercial. I mean, everybody is creating their own group <laughs> and most of them are, done by and i guess we can also complain about you having done this but <laughs> you're having a focus on the work and many of those who have a publishing relation to it they are just having it as a theoretical thing a philosophical thing they're not doing anything so kudos to your group and we're going to get back to that you. later your, your school i would say but many of the groups I hesitate, you know, let me name some. I'll, I'll not name a specific <laughs> which, but in Golden Dawn, for example, you see huge egos, you see huge commercial interests. And 
that didn't used to be the thing, especially back in the day when they tried to stay under the radar. And I think, I think yes, there's let's say Armok or the Masons for that matter, they do a good job in making people aware there's something out there. And there's something to be said for having that access channel. I agree. But mm-hmm. then you can talk about levels. And I think that the best groups, the best mystery schools still in existence are those who didn't change how they operate because in in a true if you're gonna if you're gonna separate from the zeitgeists in esoterica there's a big point of being timeless mm-hmm. and then there's no you know there's a new age notion that now all the rules of previous times are invalid and there's something special about today and everything has to change now no no <laughs> nothing new under the sun of course everything changes all the time that is correct but those who practice and there's not many and even if there were many, you wouldn't know about them because they practice traditionally. Those who do practice traditionally, they are working at a deeper level where the attention of the masses is irrelevant, is my point. So I believe it's all good. I believe in need groups that are smaller, but working deeper. And it has to be like that. You can never have, you can never make the entire nation Dr. Philos. Even in academia, the higher up you go, the fewer people it becomes. That's just a natural way of how life and, and stuff works. Yes. And so it would be the same in esoteric. And then you have, of course, groups that say, okay, we're not going to work traditional in the form of working under the radar. We're going to be a part of the open zeitgeist. And there you will have good stuff and you will have bad stuff. Good stuff would be like, uh, you know, the Institute of Noetic Sciences or, or like your, let's just give it a shout out. Yours is called? The Institute for Hermetic Studies. Right. Which is kind of like the one I just mentioned, just for esoterica, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> in my view. So it's all good. But back to Egregorus, I think that UFOs, UAPs uh, may be a manif- modern manifestation, parts of it at least. You know, in the old days, you got shamans would see stuff. Joe Rogan has made a big point of this, and to genes and what they see. Mm-hmm. Crowley, Ivos, so well known, looks like a gray. So, yes. <clears throat> but our zeitgeist is mechanical, is technological, and why wouldn't there be then energy creatures out there, far surpassing American Air Force? and thereby becoming a matter of concern even for those who have no spiritual thought in their mind. That's my point about egregores well, and UFOs. Well that, well, that raises, well, that raises the question um, of what, uh, what is this and what dimension are they coming from? Mm. And uh, if they are coming from uh, an alternate dimension, which let's use the word astral plane of some kind, mm. Uh, if, you know, adjacent to ours, there's no reason to believe that they don't have some level of technology. Mm. Uh, if we look at the legends around the Asuras, you know, the demigods that, that warred with the gods in, in uh, Indian mythology, there's the kind of technology. If we look at the uh, Solomonic literature of Goetic expression, we see that these fallen angels are listed as having instructed humanity in technology mm. you know, in different levels and different types of technology, mm. which means they had to have had it mm. or at least understood it or at least understood it when it were operated on this side of the doorway, if you want to call it that rather than veil. Great point. 
So there, there is something there that needs to be understood that where is this coming from? It may not be coming from anywhere. And that may be the more terrifying part. You know, it's not coming from outer space. Um, it, it's coming from a, a different dimension, that interdimensional aspect. And Whatever uh, that means. Whatever that means. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a problem. What does this mean? I mean, we, we wrote a little bit about that in one monograph, the mind of Hermes, when we talked about visionary phenomenon that occurs and it's, it occurs. I'm telling you, this is not theory in that monograph. It is, it is experientially directed. And, and many of your members or listeners who are familiar with some of the practices that we talked about in Amwork back in the day, but also with some of the organizations we talked about before the interview started uh, are familiar with this kind of phoetic uh, 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 or, or visionary uh, light experiences, these different visions of light that occur, and that these are not simply an aspect of light, which we think of, oh, it's light like a light bulb, but light is energy. There's an energy there, mm. and there's heat, and that means there's a form of matter taking place. So we're having a densification of energy, okay, in, in different ritual phenomena, and in different, um, even spagyrics, and, and it was reported you know, back when Amwork used to have its old alchemy classes, mm. that the salts uh, of the spagyrics uh, at sometimes could have different flashing colors to them. Mm. So this, this phenomena has to be treated within a context of, of broader study that we don't see happening. And that's because the egregores get in the way. You know, the egregore of, of many of these esoteric groups you know, they're too good to look at the research of some of the uh, psychic phenomena that took place uh, like at, at, uh, at Skoll in England or the SORAT group in the United States, where they've had the longest running meta, uh, psychokinetic phenomena for decades there that's been recorded. You know, they, they get phenomena that would make many magical lodges weep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, so so they're too good for that, and and at the same time, these people doing psychic research are are incapable of grasping a lot of the the the, the framework and the tradition that goes behind you know esoteric studies. They don't think it's worth their time. Yeah, but yeah, yeah but look at Dean Radin. He's gone completely the opposite way. He started from that academic. Now he's going full into magic, acknowledging it. Well, I would I would question that because I read his book Real Magic, and any references to magic in that were an afterthought. Oh, okay, okay. that was a marketing afterthought. Oh, okay, okay. Because I, I read the book. I haven't I, read it. I don't know, but okay. Mm. Uh, I read the book. They they are a they they were probably found in ten minutes or less on Wikipedia. <laughs> okay, and that, and but I, I give him this. At least he dared entertain, open up to that. Notion. He he didn't dare entertain. That was his publisher. Really? Wow. That was a marketing afterthought. No, but but wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's doing the rounds, the media rounds. He's giving the, kudos to magic there. Of course he is, because it's public. It's what sells. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. But interesting. Interesting. And I, and I do. <laughs> so, okay, okay. 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 It's okay. it's it's a marketing afterthought. Okay. And at the same time, you see that same organization trying to copyright uh, terminology. Uh-oh. You know, there's some very interesting aspects there where they try to own new, certain terms that have been around for decades. You Jeez. see them with trademarks on them. That's uh, 
but that's again the formation of the the egregore and how do you escape that and it's a tricky process so mm-hmm. you know we have some very good groups that can help you get you through into the gateway beyond one egregore into another it's a transition process mm-hmm. you work your way through that and you try to separate out and then of course the notion that you pointed out which is very important is what is the role of um the popular mind and popular perception mm-hmm. and that there are some very good groups out there that uh, work in privacy and silently on their own for the benefit of their members and, and others. Uh, but that we don't have, again, going against the popular notion, these aren't democratic entities. Mm. That there's no, you don't have a right to them. No. Good point. And again, that's that's a that's where political correctness comes in, and I've I've stated very emphatically. I mean, it's just a it's a vile abomination because it implies so many things that are fundamentally false. It's counter initiatic. Yeah, it goes against tradition. Tradition tends to be fairly conservative. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't talk about rights. It talks about obligations, and then your prerogatives as earned when you've shown that you can fulfill your obligations. Mm. Uh, not your right. Mm-hmm. And and this goes in how to how our terms manipulated, how our terms used, and how we attempt to But re- it's the same in academia. You don't have a right to a fellow's doctor degree. There, there are institutions that has to be structured in certain ways. I th- I think it really depends on how much do they take into account the people they're working with inputs, because you can say, see, look at freedom. It's the same with the notion of freedom. What is really freedom? Mm -hmm. Are we free in democracies? There are some democracies that can be more unfree than enlightened uh, tyrannies, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, that's uh, it's an entire different philosophical ball game you're entering now. But let me steer us. Yeah, go on. But that philosophy is in the mindset. Right. And ultimately, an egregore is a mindset. That's my point. It's ultimately a a view. And that view then creates the boundaries within which we act and react. Yeah. And that's the coin to it. It's act and react rather than response. Our reaction is habituated patterns. So if you are in a certain, uh, you know, and I've seen this within Tibetan Buddhist groups, particularly among Western converts, Mm -hmm. because, you know, when you convert to something, you really have to abandon everything that went before it, which means you have to view it as almost of no value or limited value. Mm. So you see this notion of wanting to adopt wholesale, a new culture, not a view, a culture. Mm. And and this is why so many of them have powerful egregores, not only that, but because of the, the entities which they're involved with. Mm -hmm. Um, those are powerful entities. Yeah. So all of this is, is that framework that you know, kind of talking about. What is an egregore? It's it's often it's very subtle. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, I mean, in its crudest form, you know it because you know you know it because the, the limits are very strongly there for you. But in its most subtle form, I think it's most dangerous. Mm. Mm. Manipulation and stuff. But you mentioned the East. What about tulpa? Is that an equivalent? No, because an egregore is a collective thought form. Uh, a, a tulpa is a magical emanation, and it's related to tulka uh, as, a, as a magical projection. But um, the, the just idea is it's a thought form which you create uh, and can take on a certain life of its own if you're not careful. But every thought form we create can take on a life of its own. That's my point. So couldn't, couldn't an egregore then just be a collection of tulpas? Yes, 
that would be correct. But remember, not every to- every thought form isn't an egregore because your desire to get a new car and you you visualize this, right. you know, my, I really right. need a new car. The one that that doesn't really involve bringing other people in and controlling them or limiting their sphere of action over an extended period of time. Mm. Yeah. When we think of egregores, it's really best to think in terms of big picture stuff, religion, politics, philosophy, even esotericism, um, and, and larger uh, within that philosophical business structures, because those are all Jupiterian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so egregores tend to be on some level a little more Jupiterian, even if they're small egregores, like a family. Mm. I think in terms of families, a good example would be like the Kennedys. That's a perfect example. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Perfect example of an egregore. Yeah. Uh, another example, maybe. I want to hear what you think about it. I was talking with my friend uh, and colleague, Alex Sakiris of the excellent podcast, Skeptical. He, he, he should really interview you too. Skeptical taken from, of course, the ancient. It's nothing to do with pseudo-skepticism and debunkers. It's to do with the ancient skepticals. Mm. Anyway, when we talked, uh, we came into... We were talking about evil, that old problem, (laughs) philosophical show. And we kind of went into the concept of Satan and realized eventually that Satan actually may be an egregore. I mean, Satan in the modern sense of the word, like how people imagine that concept to be. Thoughts? Oh, I think that's true. I mean, and, and that's the problem, isn't it? That when we deal with the notion of evil, there is a tendency to be very clumsy about it. There is either this notion of, well, there's really no such thing as evil. There's just ignorance. Mm. Yeah. But you you better be willing to stake a lot on that. Okay. (laughs) And then there's this notion of this is good and this is evil. Very clear cut or almost clear cut. And again, with any concept, there, there's subtleties, there's gradations to it. There's a hierarchy to evil, just as there's a hierarchy to good. Mm. And it's a very dangerous hierarchy to contemplate. As uh, many, as, as we discuss in the book on egregores, we discuss that, the problems of, of contemplating it. Mm. But we have to, to some degree, we have to be able to distance ourselves to begin to handle that problem. So people will create these clumsy notions around evil. And I think Satan is a good example. Mm. You know, what is Satanism? What is evil? And it's just a very clumsy construct (laughs) that prevents us from really addressing the complexities of ignorance in terms of error and wrongdoing, Mm. but also willful destruction, Mm. a joy in the injury, which is what we would call evil. Even Even though that's deeply rooted in ignorance, uh, it, it's still something one has to be careful about how, how they're going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I worked in social services. I've, I've worked with people who were criminals. I mean, murderers. Okay. Mm. When, when you, you we want to talk about the notion of evil, there, there's pe- many people in the occultism today have very naive notions about humanity that are deeply rooted in the excessive exuberance and optimism of the human potential movement of the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And they don't really grasp at times 
the vast variety of types of human possibilities that are out there, some of which are really not in their best interest, people who do not have their best interest at hearts. Mm. And, and it goes across the spectrum because, you know, when you have to look at reality as it is, which is what separating out from McGregor's are and what enlightenment is, enlightenment is seeing reality as it is, uh, that has some very terrifying aspects. And one of those realities is the visions that we see going back to the book in the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. There are just some aspects of, of the universe that are, are, are terribly horrifying. Mm. And, and we see that mentioned in the, uh, in the classical texts as well. You know, the, the warnings from the uh, Chaldean oracles, you know, don't, that we see repeated, mimicked, uh, I don't say mimicked, but echoed in the, the statements of the Golden Dawn. You know, don't, don't uh, stoop down and stare into those waters for too long. Be careful about that, those astral waters. Mm. Yet at the same time, how do we deal with that and, and manage our own becoming, our own awakening, and experience some joy and happiness in life as well? Mm. But, but let, let's, uh, if you go to the etymology, and I want you to actually explain the etymology. Okay. Then you will see that it also has relations to deeper stuff. Some of this stuff is known even in popular culture, thanks to people like Zachariah Sitchin. And, 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 but you also have, like you point out in your book, uh, you also have traditional stuff like um, the Book of Enoch. Yes. And there, it, it kind of conflates again with UFOs, but in another way, you know, this modern ancient alien notion that, oh, they are physical beings and they came from somewhere, these watchers. And so it all conflates with a new, you know, in occulture, if you take the really big definition of occulture where we throw in stuff like Zachariah Sitchin and, mm-hmm. and the Nephilims and all that, it's, be, it's become a new kind of fashion to look at it as creatures from another planet, uh, subduing humans. So I, I guess we have to go there. So let's just start with, you, you know, start with okay. where do the word come from? What does it actually mean? And what's your view on the ancient inputs on this? The, the, where does the word, what, egregores or, yeah. or Satan? Yeah. No, egregore. Well, I mean, you know, it's watchers. And what are these watchers? And... I think one of the problems is when we look at the modern literature, we're dealing with theoretical aspects rather than practical. Mm. That is the people making these connections of UFOs to the Nephilim. They're not doing ceremonial magic. They're not doing, um, at least that we're not being told of it in the literature. And for the most part, I don't think they are. Uh, We're not seeing people who are highly skilled in any of the psychic arts. So their, their notion may be correct to some degree, but we don't have any way of proving that. Again, it's, but it's a materialist outlook on it. And yes, that's the point. And then, so ultimately it defers down to some kind of materialistic notion because it doesn't have a, another framework or a more extensive framework to fit it in. Mm. And, um, you know, so who are these watchers? What are they? Where are they coming from? And, and I'm not going to pretend to know. Mm. I, I think that, you know, when, when, creation as we understand it when the universe exists whether it came into being or whether it has always existed as the buddhists might say you have a variety of intelligences that arise 
through the experiences and this intelligent forces, they have experiences which shape them just as we have experiences that shape us. And they have various knowledge and powers that come from that just as we develop knowledge and powers from our experiences. And they are vast at times. And we, we may have encounters with them and we call them angels or gods. And some of them may be very friendly to us as history seems to suggest. And some of them aren't. And some of them are just indifferent, just as people are. And some are truthful and some are deceitful. Yeah, I think the, the notion of deception is important because when we look at engagement with the paranormal, and this is where many of these organizations, even the traditional ones, tend to lie. And the lie might be a strong word. Uh, maybe they ignore for a while in order to get people doing something, or at least in the door, is that active engagement with the paranormal is inherently destabilizing. It has to be. Otherwise, there's no change. So when, whether it's transformation and spagyrics or alchemy, or whether it's ritual magic and meditation, something must be destabilized in order for something to come to, to change, to have a new result, to have a new effect. And this active engagement in the paranormal, which George Hansen uh, described in depth in his book, The Trickster and the Paranormal, in which I talk about in uh, Pathology of the Sublime, is almost universally ignored, mm. both by traditional groups, by paranormal researchers and by various uh, other organizations, we have to tell people this is dangerous to some degree or at least destabilizing. And, and what's going to happen in that destabilization is uh, how you, how you respond to that is going to decide, you know, your next level of awakening or your direction of your awakening or, or trauma in some cases, trauma and crisis, but then how you go through that. That's why groups are so important, but also good teachers. Because when you get destabilized, you need someone to help you and someone who's been there before you, yeah. at least, to help you through that process. Yeah. And engagement, and the invisible, to, to link it to your question, yeah. the invisible has different rules than ours. It has a different level of ethics than ours. Mm. So when you, for a perfect example, mm -hmm. I wrote an article called Why Angels Can Be Douchebags. <laughs> and it was the first time I was a little vulgar. You know, normally I don't do that. And it's not a terrible word, but no. it, it got a lot of attention and a lot of people read it. And it was for a purpose. Mm. They have a different agenda than you do. And, and you know what? The thing about them is, at least most of the time, not always, is that you do a ritual, you do it for some purpose. It doesn't necessarily work the way you want it to. You didn't get, you didn't win the lottery. You know, you didn't get the, the specific new girlfriend you wanted or job. But the good news is things didn't get worse. Mm. Okay. Now that's the important part. Things didn't get worse. Now, the reason being is there are certain forces that work harmoniously. And I think Elephas Levy pointed this out nicely that, you know, the, the things that work harmoniously, we tend to not notice and we ignore them because they work harmoniously. Mm. Where things are harm, we don't see it. They don't rock the boat. It's true. They don't rock the boat, mm -hmm. right? So these entities or beings treat us like children, as well they should, and they have our best interests at heart, more or less. 
you know, depending on what it is. So with your best interest at heart, uh, they know, you know, that's really not a good idea to let you eat six pounds of chocolate a day, mm. you know, so maybe they can have a sense of what will happen here. Now, if you look at the involvement in spiritualist circles where there's constant communication with uh, the dead or, or things like that, these entities don't have your best interest at heart. Mm. It's quite clear in the description of them. People who are involved in mediumistic circles tend to have a host of bizarre physical ailments that take place. Yeah, yeah. And in the engagements with them, the entities are quite clear they don't care about the physical well-being of the, of the mediums they deal with, even within Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. The lifespan of the state oracle is about 20 to 40 years. Mm. It's going to burn them out. Mm. Now, so one is looking out for you. One simply doesn't care. Now, I like to say with Satan or demonology, people want to invoke goetic entities to, to do their bidding for them. I, I kind of use, the, use this reference. The gods, <clears throat> excuse me, the angels treat you as a child. They look out for your best interest. But the demons treat you as an adult. Mm. So they, you, you ask for their assistance, like they say, ask three times of the devil. Mm. Well, the point is, do you want this? Yes. Are you sure you want this? Yes. Yeah, careful what you ask for. <laughs> Are you really sure you want this? Okay, good. You get it. Well, the fact is now you're responsible. Mm. You know, don't don't blame anyone else when things don't go the way you expected. That's you know because you're treated like an adult. Hang on, I just have to inject a, a small little factoid. Sure, go ahead. I'm using factoid in old Islamic marriages. I don't know if they practice it anymore, but in, in the old days, mm -hmm. they asked both uh, the bride and the groom. They said, "Do something about. Do you want to take this man as your husband, for example?" Uh, and they asked that three times. Yes. Do you want to take this? Uh, yes. Do you want to? So there's, uh, and, and that's interesting because it's principle of three is, is to do with creation. So if you're going to really create in the meaning of bringing something new into existence that didn't exist before, you have to follow the law of three. Yes. And that's just a little interesting observation when you uh, say that the demons too do that I, I guess that's related to that you have free will and they cannot impose upon you something negative like you know the old myth about the vampire has to be invited in mm -hmm. so it's kind of that's what's going on when they repeat it three times because then you have they have kind of tricked you to apply your own creational opening for that impulse to manifest just just a passing thought i don't know if that made sense but go on. Well, yes. And, you know, in, in the old church, and, and you still see it in the Orthodox churches, mm -hmm. before you can enter the church, you, you have to be, um, you're in the, the outer, the doorway, and you have to renounce Satan in all his ways three times. Mm -hmm. Now, this is important because, again, the notion is, if you want to be treated like an adult in the universe, you have to know the rules of being an adult. Mm -hmm. And that means full responsibility for yourself and your actions. And that requires a certain level of discrimination. Uh, and discrimination means understanding cause and effect. If this, then that. What is the potential effects of my actions? Well, when we talk about egregores, in many ways, that's done for us. Because they're, again, a limiting factor. 
there, whatever direction that happens to be. You know, if I want to be an electrical engineer, there's only so many courses in English literature I can take and still graduate on time. Mm. So limits can be good. If I want to be successful in life, uh, then there's certain things I must do. If I want to be healthy and fit, there's certain things I must do. So limitations are just the nature of existence. In fact, if it weren't for limitations, there'd be no such thing as duality and we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm. And that needs to be understood. The question is, do we understand them and are we in agreement with them and are they beneficial to us? That's when we get into this collective thing. Is this really helping me? Might've helped me at one time, maybe not anymore. Mm. And these entities in these different planes of existence, these different worlds, if you will, they have a different set of rules by which they go by. And we need to understand what those are before we seek to engage them on their terms. Mm. But, but are you posing that all invisible creatures are egregores? No, not in the least. But all egregores are made up of both visible and invisible creatures. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And can be hijacked by invisible creatures. Sure, most definitely. Mm. That, that's really clear. They can be hijacked. And, and more importantly, I think, they can also be hijacked by humans who knows what they're doing. I think that they're more often hijacked by humans who know what they're doing. And the humans may be hijacked by some invisible force first ah, through obsession. Right. Uh, I'm not certain right. that the invisible entities are always as able to impact the physical world as maybe easily as they would like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's a big question that we need to think about. Uh, because there's always going to be an example of it happening and an example of it, well, why didn't this happen in its place? Mm -hmm. So uh, we need to really take a wide view of paranormal phenomena there to begin to understand how those things happen and how they don't. Mm -hmm. Really to understand the kind of entities we're dealing with. Yeah. And UFOs, going back to that, I mean, that, that's where it gets into just a spectacular uh, mess. It's just a spectacular <laughs> mess. Yeah. Especially if we also have this technology wherever it came from. Right. In addition. But mm -hmm. I think I think you touched upon something crucial. Uh, and I want to take it further because we already have established that egregores can be created deliberately by people who know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They can also they are also being created automatically by by the fact that if we are sleeping gods, the masses are then we are producing egregores all the time without knowing it. Um, like you said, even a family or a supporter team in sports and or in the Catholic Church or even big concepts like the modern Jesus. I'm not talking about historical Jesus, if he even existed, but the, the concept of Jesus today or the concept of Satan. Now, here's the, here's the crucial, important question. Mm -hmm. If we have been producing egregores like crazy since the first humans walked around, then some egregores without getting feeded can probably, and I want you also to speak to that, can probably fade away. Like, let's say the Norse gods, Thor and Odin, nobody's giving them energy anymore. So they're, all, they're lingering on like almost not in our existence. But yeah. shouldn't that then also mean that we are haunted by these egregores? And 
can we then destroy, shouldn't we actually destroy some egregores who are negative to us? And in the same vein, could there be a war between egregores going on, uh, un unseen by us, of course, but maybe manifested through us in many, like even in politics and stuff like that. I'm reminded of, uh, I think, what's his name? Uh, the guy who wrote Illuminatus, Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. He wrote in Cosmic Trigger. He was on an occult party. He met Jacques Vallée. And he also met Humanius Beta, whatever he called himself, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. leader of OTO. And he said, I think there's a war in heaven. Now, he could be referring to egregores, warring egregores. I want you to address all of these uh, curveballs are thrown in. Well, that's very much the case. I mean, if we look at uh, Paul Sidir's book, um, Initiation, uh, which um, Mani Sadhu has a translation of, but Gareth Knight has one, and I think Gareth Knight's might be better mm -hmm. from what I'm told. I, I mm -hmm. I mean, I read it, but I, I can't compare. I didn't compare them as translations. Mm -hmm. And uh, on one of the essays we have on Vox Hermes, our blog, I mentioned, I, I, I quote from that in which he talks about the, the war of the egregores and how they fight. Mm. So yes, very much that these things fight because in fact, their battle starts before the one on earth does. Mm. So we look at these forces at play and they are very complex. Now, can they be destroyed? Uh, I question that to some degree. I think... I mean, if they can be created, it goes to... Right. I mean, they should be destroyed too. Well, what I'm thinking, and this is why I'm being hesitant to say they can be destroyed, mm -hmm. is what I'm thinking is that the we know we can destroy the physical contact on Earth. Mm. And we talk, that's discussed in the book, how to destroy the physical contact, at least with you to some degree. Yeah. However, I believe that that energy exists for a long time in the astral and then goes dormant and that the carcass of it is like a deflated balloon mm. that can be then reinflated at some future point with great effort right. or it can be absorbed. Right. And I think this is going back to like, we can look at the different groups. Adjoining a bigger egregore. Right. Tibetan Buddhism was hardly, it was very Tibetan, more than more Tibetan than Buddhist. Right, right. And what it did is it absorbed various cultural forces, some Indian, some Chinese, even though it doesn't want to admit to it. Others, you know, uh, pan, uh, uh, pan Asian there in terms of shamanism. Yeah. Uh, we look at Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. And how it absorbed so many forces. We look at, oh, yeah. And then, you know, you look at uh, National Socialism. You know, German National Socialism. Mm. It was an amalgamation in the early 20s of different groups until it took its form. It's the form that we think of it as. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't exist that way early on. It was no. different groups. So yeah. uh, communism, you know, there's different communist groups who are at work until we finally get the, the ones we exist with today. Mm. Okay. Mm. So there's a constant amalgamation of groups and subgroups. We see that in esoteric circles all the time. And in culture. Yeah, and in culture. So, I mean, the Fudosi was a perfect example of that. There's just a, a variety of different organizations there. Mm. That so this notion of can they be destroyed, I think what we can safely say is we can unplug them. Mm, mm, mm. Let's just be, we can unplug them. Mm. And we can keep them from having a direct influence. But since 
energy can neither be matter can neither be created nor destroyed, that energy has to go somewhere. And if it's not redirected or transmuted or transformed, sublimate, it might be the word to some degree, then it will be absorbed by some other available vehicle. It's not going to just exist in limbo. Superb point. Because, yeah, because I, I suppose when I say destroyed, really, for all intents and purposes, if you break down a form to its more purest energy, what you're really dealing with then is just mere creational energy. And of course, that can be used anywhere. And it can become something entirely new, or like you said, it can be fused with something else. So that makes complete sense. Nothing in this universe is really destroyed in the way we think of it, right? Um, I mean, there may not be immortality, but there is eternity, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even for ourselves. But let me ask a more practical question. How can we benefit from an egregore? Well, we have to know what we're getting into, or at least be able to ask the questions. Again, we have to look at what is it we expect from this relationship, and can this relationship provide that? You know, and it's uh, with a, an employer or a religion or an esoteric group. Ask questions mm. so that you know what you're getting into. Also, know why you're going there. This is the problem. When people come to volunteer at the Institute, they're often taken back because I ask them, well, I, I really appreciate your efforts and you want to help us, but what is it that you expect out of this? And they're shocked. They say, well, why do you want to volunteer? What is it that you want? And they'll often say something like, well, I just want to serve. I said, well, that's easy enough, but it's also ambiguous. Mm. And how are you going to know when you've done that? Because I need to know. I need to know how you're going to know when you've achieved your, your level of commitment. I want to serve. Okay, so you translate an article for us. That's great. Thank you. But if you if that's what you don't know that going in and you just translate one or two and now you feel happy and want to go off do something else, well, you know, maybe I had a different idea. So we need to talk about this. What is your level of commitment? What can we expect from one another? And that doesn't often happen in, in religious groups because people are so wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and and just naive. They don't even know what they want. Mm. I want happiness. I want to find peace. I want enlightenment. These are all terms we, we, don't, we don't know what they are. What would that be? What will that be like? Mm. What is an example of that? So the spiritual teachers have to be able to say, well, this is what is expected of you as a student at this level, at this point of involvement. And then the student has to be able to say, and what is it that I can expect from you as a mentor, really as a mentor or teacher, a friend and guide along the way. So the honest communication needs to be there. Mm. The problem is that the enthusiasm, the emotional aspect of it often overrides all these decisions and the mystery, you know, mystery is mystery mongering and enthusiasm can just override those parts. And that, and that gets in the way of practice. Mm. Enthusiasm is good, but it's not practice. Mm. Initiations are nice collecting empowerments, collecting lineages, these are not practice. Mm. So when you're involved with a group, you have to say, well, how much of this is going to be my practice time and how much of it is going to be me 
doing stuff for the group. I mean, there can be a, what we call a karma yoga to use that, borrow that phrase. Mm. There can be a karma yoga aspect of things. And that's very important. It really is. However, unless you have decided consciously that that is your path and method, uh, that's an area where some abuse can take place if we're not careful. Yeah, because most people who belong to something bigger are just minions. Let's say you're feeding the Catholic egregore and the Pope uses that energy to go to war, for example. Uh, it's related to, I mean, you have a chapter called freeing oneself yeah. from the influence of yeah. egregores. And that's like the other part. I, I watch, let's say, a cult victim. When they, that victim has freed itself from the cult, they, oh my God, how could I? Oh, I didn't see. That's like, bam, now they're free from that influence and they see in a different way. And you don't have to go as far as cults. Look at anything in culture. For example, yeah. a classical thing. Oh, I was a white supremacist. Now I'm converted. Oh, I don't know what I was doing. You, you have it in all sorts of notions that you go into. Let's say you believe very much in, you know, in, in some conspiracy theories, like, for example, the, the Anunnaki, and you think, oh, they are alive today. And, oh, he, this guy is a lizard man. And then you get out of that. And, oh, my God, how could I be so stupid? Could this be people who have freed themselves from egregores and now get a more neutral view on the past? Well, of course. And, and you know, we, we see this across the board. You know, when we look at any type of manipulation, it involves a manipulation of your goodwill mm-hmm. uh, and to some degree naivete. Uh, even in the most criminal aspect, when you look at the recruitment process that goes on for it, uh, a suicide bomber, mm-hmm. you know, fundamentalist mm-hmm. Islam is a powerful egregore. Mm-hmm. And probably one of the most destructive on the planet today. Mm. Uh, and, know- and one of the most manipulation egregores. I mean, it's used politically. It's used Correct. by completely other things than and, what those who adhere to it believe. Right. And yet, and yet, and yet, the ability and willingness of those who believe to resist it is limited. Yeah. Because they are afraid of it. Mm. And yet. It's very decentralized. So the notion of egregores also has that decentral has the potentiality of that decentralization aspect. That's why you know I was saying why the difficulty in using the word destroy. We can we can unplug it rather than mm. often destroy. It. So we we see that they go after a type of person. That type of person, uh, often of uh, low intelligence, uh, often marginally uh, retarded. Because you have to get someone who's willing to kill themselves. You know, this this profile of who's going to be a good suicide bomber is well known. Em- emphasis on the word profile. Now, let's skip. Let's skip to other cults. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're recruiting for your cult on the streets of San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York, <clears throat> excuse me, there is a type of person you're looking for. Not only in terms of age, but also background. So. Person, I think, I think o- overly, overly idealistic is an advantage, right? But also, also without purpose. So homeless mm. runaways are great. Homeless and runaways are great. So your profile, you know, we don't like to talk about profiles today, but profiles exist because they're real. That's a type of archetype. Mm. Whether you're dealing with a, a Piscean or a Scorpio or a, a, a Capricorn, or whether you're dealing with something from the Enneagram 
or something from Azanjoli's work on, on personality types, personality types exist. Myers-Briggs is used a lot by uh, Intel agencies. Yes, my, all of this, they exist for a reason because they give us a narrowness of factors that we can zero in on and begin to work with. Mm. Again, it's a form, you know, and, and with that, we have to say that these things exist. So how do we recognize our strengths and weaknesses as a human being and how those weaknesses may be used against us? And what is a weakness? A weakness is usually a strength used so much that it becomes a habit. Mm. You know, you, you know, it's very good to con be concerned about others. It's very good to be compassionate, but you can also do that to the point where it's detrimental to you and others. And we call mm. those codependent relationships. Mm -hmm. So anytime you find yourself in a codependent relationship and a cult is a codependent relationship, yeah. whether it's a religious cult, a political cult, a combination of both, um, all of that means where your identity becomes so wrapped up in the otherness that you have no sense of identity yourself. Exactly. Identity is central here. Right. Yeah. It's about identity manipulation. That's why political correctness is so vile mm. because it's fundamentally identity politics. Mm -hmm. it's, it's such an excellent point. Let's, let's take, take a, pause a pause for a moment. moment. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So let's take a, a break and uh, we hook up in five minutes. Good. Good. See you in a couple of um, minutes. Okay. 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 All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 